Good day, everyone. And here we go with another edition of Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. Clean air, clean water, affordable electric bills. These are all things that if you say them to people, they really support. These are really popular ideas. Most of us want all of those things. But we may not be able to have any of those things because of the way that our climate is changing. As we've already seen, flooding and warming are making our infrastructure really vulnerable, and we are in desperate need of significant change. This is probably the reason that the Whitmer administration in Lansing is trying to get ahead of more problems it sees coming down the road. And it's also probably why the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy recently released a Michigan Healthy Climate Plan report. It contains a moonshot goal. Make Michigan carbon neutral by 2050. It's less than 30 years away. Now, there are a lot of plans to help the state reach that goal, like ramping up public transportation and changing the electrical grid, all while while prioritizing our state's most disadvantaged residents in the plan. And while these initiatives sound really great, it's hard not to wonder how everything will get done. This is not an easy goal. It is literally almost a moonshot. Here to help explain how we get to that carbon neutrality by 2050 or somewhere in that range is Liesl Clark. She is one of the leads on the Michigan Healthy Climate Plan and the director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy, EGLE. Liesl Clark, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So can you first make the case for... Why this climate report matters? Why does it matter that the state would no longer emit carbon and would do so completely, eliminate carbon emissions by 2050? Well, I think, Stephen, that you very correctly tie this together with the water challenges that we've had across the state um, in the last few years, which I think is what helps make our understanding as 10 million Michiganders of uh, the challenges with climate really real. So in 2021, we had more than 1 million Michiganders out of power because of climate-induced weather events, sometimes for a week or more. Uh, As many folks in Southeast Michigan know, the very intense rain that our environment has now started to give us, so much more rainfall coming in a much shorter amount of time cause widespread floods, sewer backups, and pretty severe property damage um, in Southeast Michigan. Those challenges are very personal for people, Um, people that lost a lot in the course of that, those water events. And, you know, I had the chance to visit with um, some Detroiters in particularly hard-pressed areas where it had been so many reoccurring challenges that they weren't even, you know, using their basements anymore. They weren't even, um, they just knew it was going to happen. 
I think an important piece of that too is that our water infrastructure, so our pipes and our sewers and our um, uh, the the things that move our, our pumps that move our water around, is really undersized for the amount of weather that we're getting. Um, we of course have seen pretty massive flooding. We've seen dam failures. We've seen water level issues. We see we see crop failures because of the erratic spring temperatures, which you know, it's interesting to talk about on this mid 60s day when we just had what four or five 80 to 90 days degree days in a row. Um, you know, these these challenges, I didn't even mention, you know, algal algal blooms or um, issues with disease carrying insects and ticks. You know, these are real, real things for Michiganders. Um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing that more and more. Mm. Now, there are a lot of pieces that I think are less intangible that we can draw the draw the connections to, or less tangible for for Michiganders that we can draw the connections to. Um, you know, like um, the issues that we have with the way that our power grid is structured um, and the impacts that that has on us. So, um, you know, there's there's just a lot of opportunity here uh, to make a change. And you know, the governor absolutely thinks that you know the time is now, and in some respects, the time is. The time was before, but mm. we have to take the action immediately. So two questions about the dates. 2050 is less than, a little less than uh, 30 years from now. Uh, but of course, uh, if you set a goal for that date, you have to have in mind, I think, several other dates, right, uh, al- along the way. So um, talk about benchmarking um, and what if this plan works, we would see change by, say, 2030 or 2025 even. Uh, what, how does this roll out? Yeah, great question. So the plan did take into account levels of dates that would help us make sure that we were on the right path. Um, so while it was organized around the longer-term goal that the governor set for us, we also set um, and, and when I say we, it's the department wrote the plan informed by um, the Council on Climate Solutions, which is uh, uh, 14 folks from um, NGOs, business, um, academia, uh, uh, public sector, as well as informed by some members of state, state government um, and um, a whole lot of listening sessions to put this together. So we set 2030 dates as well as 20 or 2030 targets as well as 2050 targets. And so some of the um, things that you can think about from a 2030 perspective was um, uh, importantly, uh, homes and business heating. So a 17 redu- 17% reduction in emissions there by 2030. Um, something that we all think about a lot, talk about a lot in Michigan, um, changing our mobility structure. So creating the infrastructure for 2 million electric vehicles on the roads by 2030. Um, from an energy perspective, generating 60% of our electricity from renewables um, by 2030. Um, let's see. Uh, also thinking through, let's see, land and water. Um, so making sure land and water is a really important part of this puzzle um, in that in that um, they help like, protecting our land and water helps protect our climate. Mm-hmm. And we one of the most um, kind of moving sessions for me was the one that was talking through wetlands and about how wetlands sequester 
um, the carbon from the past that is so important. Um, but the target that was set in the plan was 30% of Michigan's land and water protected by 2030 so that we're capturing greenhouse emissions greenhouse gas emissions and maintaining recreational opportunities, of course, protecting biodiversity. So the plan looks at um, kind of a tiered approach in order to help um, help us make sure on the way. But I wanna say too, I think that if we do this right, it's something that people can see, touch and feel immediately. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Um, energy efficiency is just a really incredible place to spend time and energy. Um, because of what it does for us on an everyday basis, because it can save money for Michiganders, residentials, as well as businesses, um, at the same time as it uh, keeps you more comfortable um, in your home place. And so that is, and um, sets us up so that we're not creating, um, we're not generating kilowatts that we don't need to use. So that is something that um, one piece of the plan that people can feel and touch and see immediately and have an impact. Mm. I'm talking with Liesl Clark. She is the director of the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, otherwise known as EGLE. Uh, we're talking about uh, the state's uh, big plan to make Michigan carbon neutral by the year 2050 little less than 30 years from now. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Do you think that's a realistic goal to stop carbon emissions by 2050? Uh, is that too early? Is it too late? Uh, also, give us a sense of how you feel your life is being influenced by the changing climate, by the flooding that we've experienced, by warmer temperatures. Uh, what kinds of solutions? Do you want to see to those things? Uh, what do you think the state and its cities need to be doing to help you avoid the worst of climate change? Look at the calendar, folks. Uh, we're coming up on another summer. If it's anything like what we experienced last summer, a lot of us are in for some real trouble. Um, give us a sense of what you think we ought to be doing to prepare for that, first of all, uh, but also to stop the climate from changing in a way that's causing all of this disruption. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and uh, put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, give us a sense of what you might be willing to sacrifice to reach a goal like this. Do you think that that kind of sacrifice, uh, you know, using less energy, using different kinds of energy um, is part of, of the requirement here that, that, that all of us are going to have to think differently about energy and its use in order to make this work? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones and you can go to social media as well. Uh, Lisa, I want to put that question to you. Um, is this about sacrifice? Is this about changing lifestyles uh, in a way that may, might make some people hesitant um, about the goal? Or do you believe that we can reach a goal like this by just changing things a little uh, and, and kind of keeping our lives the way they are? 
Well, Stephen, I'm really glad you gave me that question because I was going to attempt to pull it in if you didn't give it to me directly because <laughs> I don't think it is sacrifice. Uh, there are so many places where there's economic opportunity in this change. It is change. And there are things that we will think about on an individual basis that make a difference, that really can add up. Um, but, you know, just take energy efficiency, for example. Um, that So first off, I should say to folks that are listening that if you're interested in energy efficiency improvements on your homes, reach out to your utility. Um, they have programs to aid in that work for you. So it's not like you have to go embark upon it on yourself uh, by yourself. And there are some incredible Michigan-grown businesses like Walker Miller Energy Services that are working on this type of thing and improving this um, in their communities. It's energy efficiency is also great because it's not something that you really can export. Um, however, when we look at the types of economic opportunity that exist within this transformation, um, Michigan is ripe to take advantage of it. So before I leave energy efficiency, for every dollar you invest in reducing energy waste, you um, homeowners can save $3.30 on your future energy bills. And so um, it's an opportunity to save in the future. Now, let me say too, that this is something that we as humans are very bad at calculating that cost and that benefit, if that makes sense. We have a hard time understanding just inherently as people, as humans, that an investment today pays off in the future. It's not something that we're wired to do, um, which is why um, it's something that we have to build the right incentives um, through utility programs um, in order to get that outcome. The same is also true of electric vehicles. In general, EVs, you can save 6,000 to 10,000 over the lifetime of the vehicle compared to internal combustion engines um, because charging is less expensive. And um, obviously, we're seeing um, all of those energy numbers kind of fluctuate right now. Um, also, EVs typically cost about half as much in repairs and half as much to maintain. Now, um, we know that um, some EVs still are more expensive up front. That's why the governor is part of this plan also um, recommended the legislature to adopt um, EV rebates um, to help hasten uh, the deployment of those vehicles. And we have to do the infrastructure deployment at the same time and make sure that that infrastructure is available um, across our 83 counties so that everyone is able to take advantage of it. Um, at the same time, as we're talking about EV deployment, um, there's also an incredible workforce opportunity here. Um, we know that we've got the best workers and we've got the smartest people um, and we've got, what is it, the highest engineers per capita. And so we've got the workforce to be on the cusp of this technology uh, deployment, not only from the getting the vehicles on the road, but most importantly, from the manufacturing side. So let's talk about renewables for a second. Let me say, as a starting point, you articulated it well in your question, which is that um, all different types of energy fit together. Mm -hmm. And so all energy has pros and cons. All energy, every source has a pro and a con. They all have to fit together in order to get us where we're going. The good news is, as we're deploying more and more renewables across our grid, renewables are the cheapest option right now. Um, both solar and wind have come down dramatically. Um, and, you know, wind's down, uh, I don't know, eight, or, um, eight times. Solar's down, I think, 10 times in the last 10 years. So just incredible cost decreases. Um, and that compares with natural gas and certainly coal as well. So as we're thinking about what our grid looks like, we can get to those outcomes that you talked about at the outset, which is cleaner air, cleaner water, um, as we're deploying those resources. And again, 
Wind and solar also have pros and cons in the same way that other resources do. And so it's a portfolio of a grid in the same way as it's a portfolio as you think about, you know, your home. But this type of investment really pays off. Also, when we think about it from a climate adaptation perspective, we know that Michigan can really benefit um, from spending money from on climate adaptation. Um, so what do I mean by that? Think about the types of flooding events that we've had because of our water infrastructure challenges and because of our climate um, in Southeast Michigan. Think about the cost to people, the cost to businesses of dealing with that on the emergency side. Mm -hmm. If we make the improvements, um, both um, from a climate mitigation perspective, as well as from a water infrastructure investment perspective, think of the heartache we're saving people when they're not losing their, you know, treasured pictures in basement floodings, um, let alone the time and energy that it goes into dealing with all the pieces there. So it really is, these are really important investments that we do need to make. And I think that we're really poised to do that right now. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. has got a lot of folks who want to participate in this uh, uh, this conversation. Let's start with Kim in Detroit. Kim, what's on your mind? Hi. I've got just three quick uh, things to add to uh-huh. uh, the, the guest thing about how, how Michigan can become, can jump off of fossil fuels and jump onto clean renewables. Um, uh, one is currently... Uh, a lot of utilities are making it cost prohibitive for communities and individuals to go solar. And the governor, Whitmer administration can work to make that um, so that folks can, you know, afford, you know, work with your utilities and say you have to make uh, solar affordable for communities and individuals. Because right now they're making it cost prohibitive. The second thing is, uh, if all state-owned buildings and state-run buildings went to solar and wind, you know, of course, with efficiency, uh, and you encourage the major cities, Detroit, Grand Rapids, to change their municipal buildings to wind and solar, uh, that will uh, help the market a great deal make uh, wind and solar far more uh you know affordable mm-hmm. it'll it'll bring the cost down and third uh work with on the ground activists uh michigan environmental justice coalition uh, highland park is a hotbed of climate justice right now with a group called solidarity and avalon village there's a lot of wisdom on the ground folks working really hard so i encourage you all to work with those folks change municipal municipal buildings and to, uh, you know, uh, 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 make it so that wind and solar can be affordable uh, for folks on the ground. Mm. That's it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate that call, Kim, and those ideas. Uh, Lisa, are, are these ideas that are part of the state's plan? Well, Kim, those, those are, I just couldn't agree more. You're absolutely in the right place. So um, we used an environmental justice conversation to really ground all of this work, um, not only in the course of the Climate Council itself, but also working with the Michigan Advisory Council on Environmental Justice, who are important advisors to um, the department's work and to the administration. Um, is there more to do there? Absolutely. So love the idea of working with the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition. Solidary is just an incredible group. And when you think about the type of work that needs to happen, the type of action that needs to happen on the ground, um, it's got to be informed by um, people that 
can see their communities and know what their communities need and can tell us uh, from a safe perspective, you know, it, how can we support and maybe sometimes supporting is getting out of the way, right? Mm. Um, but how do we make that action happen? And that combines with um, one of President Biden's goals, which is making sure that we follow the Justice 40 guidelines for federal funding. Um, and so that means that 40% of state funding for climate related and water infrastructure initiatives need to benefit Michigan Michigan's disadvantaged communities. Um, and I would also um, uh, encourage people to think about um, helping those communities that need it the most and remembering that those communities are spread across our 83 counties. Um, they look like um, you and me. They We all have to lift everybody up together. And that means rural and urban. That means small and large. You know, that means all the different um, different people of Michigan um, need to be reflected in how do we how do we lift people up and make sure that we're moving everything together. Um, so I also want to mention to completely agree with the need for uh, rooftop solar deployment. Um, that's an important part um, of uh, deployments. And if we see um, opportunities again for large deployments, small deployments, all of it needs to fit together. Um, and I think community um, efforts can be really important here. Michigan um, Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy has a program uh, for solar deployment on uh, houses of worship. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that we need to be creative and how do we put the pieces together? And I couldn't agree more with the state-run building comment. And that's why Governor Whitmer last year on Earth Day um, committed the state to 100% renewable purchase for um, state-run buildings. Um, so we're very excited that we have a variety of efforts where the state is leading by example. And uh, th I think those are very important activities to make sure that we're putting our money where our mouth is. Mm. Uh, again, thanks very much, Kim, for the call and the really provocative ideas. Uh, okay, Liesl Clark, uh, it was really great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today to talk about all of this stuff. And uh, congratulations on putting together a pretty ambitious plan. And uh, we look forward to seeing how it all rolls out. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. All right, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about Michigan's climate plan and how our laws and industries need to adapt to a changing climate with environmental law expert Nick Schreck. We'll also get to more of your comments and questions uh, on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to social media. We've got a number of comments there that I'll mix into the conversation here. Uh, you can go to Facebook or to Twitter and uh, hashtag us and uh, we can include you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Michigan has not typically been in the news for positive things around climate infrastructure, although it has a ton of fresh water. The state has made national and global news for poisoning citizens with dirty drinking water or not providing residents drinking water at all. 
lot of citizens can't even afford the increasing utility bills. Uh, polluted air has created higher asthma rates, and unprepared infrastructure has led to flooded homes and streets. So what's happening to remedy these problems? What is the state doing? What are cities doing to ensure that this place, our home, is livable, not just for the next year, but 20 or 30 years into the future? That is what we are talking about today. The things we need to do to uh, combat climate change, but also to limit the effects of our lives on the climate so that it doesn't change as fast as it is, or maybe it's not changing at all. To continue this conversation, we've got a really great expert with us. Nick Schreck is the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Nick, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be with you. I first want to get your reaction to Michigan's new climate report, uh, which sets out this 2050 goal of the state being carbon neutral. How how realistic is that? And is 2050 a real a goal that maybe should be 2040 or 2035? Well, yeah, the, the sooner the better. Certainly, I mean, we're as you know we've discussed and we, we've certainly experienced here in Michigan um, the impacts of a warming climate um, and the impacts of more intense storms and rain events and all of that. So the sooner the better, certainly. Um, as far as the the plan itself, I, I do think it's it's ambitious and it's a good roadmap for how to get the state to that you know zero carbon type of economy that we need to be at in order to to thrive in a in a clean energy future and so it's a good roadmap um you know like like these plans often are it sets some good goals and some benchmarks but there isn't a lot of detail as to how the plan would actually be implemented um you know the types of laws that we would need to change the type of action we would need from the legislature to get there so just to give one example Stephen I think it's entirely achievable in fact very much so achievable for us to get to 50% renewable energy by 2030, which is only you know eight short years away, but we would need legislation to force that to happen. I, I don't think we would see that type of an aggressive uh, change to renewable energy without legislation uh, directing our utility companies to do that. Um, because currently we're, we have a 15% renewable energy target, which um, we're, we're going to meet, but that was required by legislation. And so that, that's really the way we've had to kind of force um, Force progress in this area. So, so again, the plan. I think it's a really good step forward. It has some really excellent um, direction to get us where we need to be. But we still need a lot of that um, hard work now, working with the legislature and with the government to actually implement it. So, let's talk about politics. Republicans tend not to love these kinds of ideas, and what they say is that they hurt business. That uh, it will make it harder for people to make money uh, off lots of different things if you have these kinds of energy requirements. Um, but, of course, uh, politics is about negotiation and and compromise. I, I want to have you do just a little prognosticating here. <laughs> what, what are things that perhaps Republicans would be willing to compromise about to meet these goals, and which other things would they just kind of stand in the way of? Well, there has been a lot of movement on renewable energy in more rural parts of our state, which um, you know tend to be more conservative at the ballot box. Um, but this is largely um, farmers and other landowners that want to have wind turbines on their property or larger scale solar 
arrays to, to generate electricity from solar panels. And you're actually seeing a demand from those communities to allow more access to, to those types of technologies and to allow them to be permitted because that generates revenue. Um, you know, if you're leasing land for a wind turbine, that's generating revenue for the farmer, and they can still continue to plant crops around the turbines or, or let you know animals graze and that type of thing. And so we're starting to see a lot of movement, and this has been building you know really for decades now of um, this demand for access to renewable energy generating opportunities in more rural communities. And so that has put a little bit of pressure on you know more traditionally conservative Republican legislators to to look at renewable energy in a new way because they're getting demands for it from constituents. So I think there's a real opportunity there. Um, continuing to work towards energy independence in this country, that's been messaging that has been um, received sympathetically from conservative as well as more liberal voters, and and trying to to you know really control our own destiny more in a way than rather continuing to import coal into Michigan or to, you know, import oil and all of that. I'm really trying to generate more of that capacity. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And then the other thing, Stephen, is, is with infrastructure. You know, we do have this big pot of money coming in from the federal government to focus on infrastructure. And, you know, typically you'll see um, elected officials getting on board with infrastructure projects because it's something that they can, you know, tout whether it's the new roads, new bridges, um, you know, other, other new infrastructure that can be um, seen in their communities. They're less likely to talk about sewers and the underground infrastructure because nobody sees that. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to get a name nameplate, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the sewer sewage infrastructure. Um, but again, I think that's all joking aside. That's a real opportunity for you know building some some consensus, working to roll out whether it's electrification infrastructure for vehicles, uh, building out transit. I think there's opportunities to reach out to more conservative audiences by demonstrating that this, this infrastructure is something that can work for all of us. This isn't just a city's thing. It's something that we need to build out across the state. Hmm. So I, I wanted to ask this question of uh, Lisa Clark when we had her, and uh, of course she she uh, gave us a, a great, generous amount of time, but uh, couldn't stay longer. But, uh, but I am going to ask it of you. Uh, you know, here in Detroit, we have a different set of problems with regard to climate change than we do in other parts uh, of the state. Some of that is because of environmental racism. Some of that is because of uh, older infrastructure. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, but um, Eagle has recently requested uh, that the EPA reclassify Southeast Michigan um, as meeting air quality standards for ground level ozone, which would stop state officials from reducing uh, pollution levels. Uh, this is being done in um, you know, in a city that has this terrible, terrible asthma problem, right. uh, especially among children, uh, because of pollution. So, so what is Eagle up to there? Yeah, and and this is, I mean, it's something that you know I certainly um, disagree with, and I think you know we we should be doing whatever we can and using whatever regulatory tools we have at state and federal government to try and reduce ground level ozone. And ozone is generated by burning fossil fuels. It's also generated by you know, off-gassing of things like paints and solvents. But um, when we have our ozone action days, a big part of that is to try and reduce the consumption of fossil fuels and also doing things like filling up your tank because vapor escapes and, and contributes to that ground-level ozone. Ozone is, is more difficult to control than other types of pollution, Stephen, because it is so widespread, right? Like it's from our vehicles, it's from gas-powered lawnmowers, you know, all, all kinds of um, Types of types of uses of fossil fuels that that contribute to that, and so it is harder to rein in than say controlling sulfur dioxide or particulate matter at a 
uh, a power plant or something where you can actually have the scrubbers there to try and control some of that pollution. So I think part of what you're seeing here is um, a, a bit of a challenge about how to actually try and bring down those ozone levels. And, and I think, you know, sort of an, an un- unwillingness to really aggressively go after some of the sectors that are the, the main contributors to ozone, which which include us driving around in cars. And, and, um, and so, to, you know, really aggressively, you know, get at that problem. The way you do it is by increasing fuel economy in vehicles, again, trying to hasten this um, switch to electric vehicles. And really what I think I, I was encouraged to see some of this in the climate plan, but we need a lot more of it, and that is pushing for better and more efficient public transportation. You know, that's the way that we can move people around the city of Detroit, if we can do it in electric buses or clean fuel burning buses, um, you know, getting people where they need to go without contributing to, to ozone and without contributing to, to climate change, I mean, that's a huge win. And so that, that's where I think we really need to invest some resources is just reducing the amount of vehicle miles traveled because that is contributing to the ozone problem, but it's also contributing to, to climate change. And then, of course, all of our issues with the roads that we've talked about many, many times, um, you know, maintaining that um, road infrastructure is very expensive and also very carbon intensive uh, type of work concrete and asphalt are very carbon intensive. So, um, yeah, that, that's why I think we really need to look at um, pushing the state, advocating to continue to try and get a handle on that ground level ozone because it does exacerbate asthma, it does cause these health problems, and, and there are ways we can get out of it, right? It's just that we, we really have to focus that attention, and because it's more of a dispersed type of a pollution source, it's a little bit harder from a regulatory perspective to, to work on. Yeah. I want to read some uh, social media comments. Uh, Anthony on Twitter says, unless they drastically change the state's trajectory with regard to transit, I don't see this happening. Uh, Michael says, does the guest have thoughts on solar power owned by private individuals to power things? Lots of chatter that Michigan isn't for this. Related uh, question um, from Big Neo on Twitter, he says, uh, has regulations that uh, DTE has regulations that stop customers from having the max solar and windmill on their homes. Uh, Nick, let's talk about the relationship between state government and utility companies and how it hinders uh, the, our, our progress toward carbon neutrality and what needs to change so that uh, there's more of a cooperation happening there. Yeah, this is, I mean, that's a a great question, and um, it it can be somewhat difficult to unpack because of the different layers of regulatory authority and the way that our electric grid actually functions. Um, But, you know, in short, in in Detroit and in much of southeast Michigan, we are DTE electric customers. Um, Some people are DTE gas customers, but many people are consumers energy gas customers um, in metro Detroit. Other parts of the state, consumers energy is the the leading um, electricity producer as well. And in our homes and in our businesses, we are tied to the grid, meaning when we turn on the light, we're, we're using power that is shared in an electric grid system that is in multiple states and also in the province of Manitoba. That's a very large system called, called MISO, which is our grid operator. Mm-hmm. And so power is shared throughout that grid. And locally, though, our utility company, so DTE here in Metro Detroit, um, they, they really do control the type of generating electric generating capacity that can be fed into the grid. So if you have solar panels on your roof and you just want the solar power to, you want to be off the grid, right? You want the solar panel to fill up some batteries in your basement. And you just want to you know, live off the grid on solar power. DTE will allow you to do that. They'll come and, you know, cut the, <laughs> cut the power and take you off the grid. But if you want to have your solar tied into the grid system and, and to continue to have the, that access to, to, to power um, 
at all times without having battery backups. There is sort of a convoluted process to make all of that happen. And I think that what that comment was actually getting at is, you know, how do we make it so that rooftop solar is more accessible, more affordable, more easy to bring online throughout the community? That means working with DTE because they are our utility that, that you know, largely has a monopoly over our, our power supply here in southeast Michigan, you know, working with them to expand those opportunities for you know, anyone who, who wants to get solar power on the roof to make it happen. Um, challenge there, though, of course, is we do have this grid that we need to maintain. So you have to capture some revenue. You have to be able to, to maintain the power lines, to do tree trimming, right, to avoid, avoid outages and all of that. There has to be some money fed into the system. And that is where in states that are ahead of us on solar, They've really had a lot of, of fights. Um, so Western states, you know, Arizona, um, they've been fighting over, you know, how much money do solar-powered owners have to provide into the, the system to help support the grid? And that often gets very contentious. And so, um, you know, we're, we're seeing those types of, of challenges raised here in Michigan, but we do have huge, enormous opportunities to build out uh, solar capacity. And then just real briefly on wind, um, yes, we're not going to have the, the large um, – <laughs> You know, huge turbines that you would see out, out in a more rural area in an urban area because um, they just they don't fit there, right? Like we don't have the space for them. But there are opportunities for smaller scale uh, wind turbines on you know, even in urban areas and residential property. And so we're hoping to see more of that rolled out too. But again, you have to have that regulatory framework in place for the the, the private customer, the private property owner, to be able to quickly and easily get that power tied to the grid and to be you know, compensated for extra power that they generated and, and to make sure that they have a fair, a fair rate structure um, for, for that power that they're both producing and consuming. So, yeah, there, there's definitely some pieces there that we still need to work on. Yeah. Okay, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation with Nick Schreck of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School about climate change and the way that uh, the state and our cities can react to it to get us to a carbon neutral state, uh, maybe in the next 30 years. Uh, Also, what we need to do to accomplish that goal. I want to continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. Uh, Give us a call. Let us know what you think we ought to be doing to get to carbon neutrality. What are you willing to do? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Nick Schreck. He is Associate Dean of Experiential Education and an Associate Professor at University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. He is an environmental law expert. We're talking about climate change, uh, the, uh, the things that we're all experiencing because of climate change, especially here in Southeast Michigan, and the state's new goal to move us to carbon neutrality by the year 2050. How do we do that? Uh, How do we accomplish that? Uh, Will it be something that's really disruptive to a lot of our lives? Uh, Is it something that we need to just kind of square our minds around as a way to make sure that the really devastating effects of climate change don't get worse uh, than what they already are? As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. 
and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Let's go next to Glenn in Detroit. Glenn, welcome to the show. Oh, uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this is great. I think it's essential. I'm a real fan of electric cars. And uh, so there's, uh, I think we need to look at and talk about how we're going to pay for the roads when we don't have a gas tax. And so the idea of uh, a what's called a road user charge, where you pay based on the mileage that you drive mm-hmm. instead of through your gas, uh, is a great idea. And I want to uh, hear how the state's doing with it. I know there's some things going on in Lansing, and it was part of the Build Back Better bill as well. Utah and Oregon are also working on it. Yeah. Uh, great point to bring up, Glenn. And Nick, I think it's something that applies not only to the idea of how we pay for roads, but lots of other things that, that we have to kind of consider um, changing in terms of the way that we pay for things if we're going to deal with you know different sources of energy and get away from fossil fuels. Right. And and as the, the caller indicated, I mean, the gas tax funding a lot of the work that we do on our roads, when there's discussion of, of cutting the gas tax or of making changes to it, I mean, that does have potentially big impacts on the amount of money that we have available to maintain our existing roads. And so, so right, so the, the thought there is that, yeah, you'd have some sort of a usage fee for the amount of time that you're, you're spending on the roads um, and being able to contribute that way towards their maintenance. And that's not unlike the discussion we were just having regarding rooftop solar, right? Like if, you're, if you still want to be tied to the grid, you have to be able to, uh, you're, you're going to have to contribute some financial resources to continue to operate that grid. And that's a big shift in the way we think about things, right? Like, you know, I think for most people, it's like you get the bill, you pay the light bill. You know, it's not, it's not like um, you're, you're not necessarily thinking about um, all these nuanced pieces of how it all fits together. Um, but with making those kinds of changes, like more electric vehicles on the roads, that will mean a lower gas tax. So, yeah, we have to confront that and we have to come up with a good way to continue to maintain our roads. And, you know, I, I think electric vehicles are, are a really important way for us to, to get to where we need to be with a, a much, much healthier renewable energy future. Um, but we also have to, again, look at trying to move more people with uh, mass transit or, or with public transportation, because having all of those cars on the road still do you know, contribute, whether it's debris off of tires, brake dust, et cetera. There's a lot of pollution from that. And then continuing to maintain those roads and um, you know, there's proposals to expand roads in many areas, that does cost an awful lot of money and there are significant climate impacts attached to it. So electric vehicles are great, but we also really need to build out that transit piece. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Glenn, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Frank in Livonia. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Um, you know, I think a, a lot about the products that we buy and individuals make choices. Like uh, you think about avocados that come from Mexico and California all the way across the continent, uh, bananas that come from Central America on boats. And, you know, a lot of these things like flowers are, are actually flown in from Israel and from Brazil and from Cambodia and Vietnam, I mean, you know, they're, they're actually put on jets and all the refrigeration and all these things. And so, you know, I mean, we need to, you know, take responsibility for these things ourselves and our buying decisions every day, every moment, you know, we can make a choice not to buy a banana mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and not use that energy. Uh, you know, it's the same thing we were just talking about transportation. You know, do you really need to go anyplace? I mean, can you, can you cut down <laughs> your travel by 10%? Uh, Frank, I I, I love this call because I think it gets at a really central question 
around climate change and the response to climate change. And that's that's how much responsibility falls on us as individuals and how much falls on uh, government. Nick, you and I have actually talked about this before. And, and, you know, I mean, it's clearly not an either or. It is a both and. But but I think it's worth thinking about how much it is a both and. In other words, uh, how much should we be trying to do as individuals uh, and how much should we be pressuring government to make different decisions that affect far more people? Yeah, it, it is, it's a both and. I mean, great call and great points. Um, we can certainly make choices as consumers that lower our carbon footprint. Um, yeah, I mean, buying fruit and vegetables that's in season here in Michigan, um, we have a shorter growing season than other parts of the world. But by doing that, we can definitely reduce the carbon footprint. Um, you know, not eating meat at, at every meal, you know, um, or, or considering, you know, meatless days, that can be a, a huge um, savings to, to carbon and also uh, provide a lot of environmental benefits and perhaps health benefits too. So there's, there's definitely choices that we can make that do go a long way to, towards helping us get out of the situation and into, again, a, a more kind of thriving clean energy future. As far as what, you know, industry and government needs to do, I mean, that's, that's a huge piece of it, right? You know, collectively, the, just here in Southeast Michigan, you know, four or five million people, that's, that's a lot of us. And, you know, we're going to have to work together through our government to, you know, meet these targets to, to actually see something like the Michigan Climate Plan come to fruition. That's going to be done at the large utility scale and at, at the government scale. And then us as individuals, we can make choices that certainly help things along and that, that help our own lives. And I, and I love the comment about, uh, do I really need to go somewhere? Um, one of the things that I learned during the pandemic was, you know, really getting what I need to, to get through a week in my household, I, I can usually do that in, in one trip, you know, maybe two if I don't, if I don't plan as well. And, and so that can really cut down on the amount of, of coming and going. And so thinking like that really does have environmental benefits and it can certainly save money in your, in your gas tank too. So, so yeah, I love that, but it's gotta be us as individuals being as informed as we can, trying to take action with our own purchasing power and, and getting involved locally. But then it's also talking to elected officials and candidates running for office and saying, look, we really need to aggressively um, get serious about renewable energy. We need to get serious about improving the weatherization of our homes and businesses to, to, to save energy. Um, and we really need to get aggressive on transit to help get us where we need to be um, to, to, to meet these climate challenges of the future. Hmm. Uh, again, Frank, really appreciate the call. Let's go to Barb in the Rochester area. Barb, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Um, I love this discussion. I just want to bring up a point. Um, I serve on the local school board in my community, and um, we have to look at the carbon footprint that local school districts have on their communities as well. I know that the Aspen Institute has put out um, – a K-12 climate action plan for uh, local school districts hmm. throughout the United States to try and address that issue. Um, and I really want to encourage and challenge other school districts, um, other trustees on school districts to consider the footprint that our school districts have and to implement a climate action plan because I really think it's key um, in modeling the kind of behavior that I think the kids that um, are within our school districts really want to see and uh, good stewardship of our environment. Um, so that's that's my comment, and I really appreciate this discussion. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Barb, I really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful comments. Nick, uh, respond to what Barb said. 
Yeah, 100% Barb. I mean, that's, um, you know, looking at larger users of energy. So schools where we've got, you know, potentially thousands of kids coming in um, every day, that's the, the, the transportation getting them there, whether it's on buses or, or individual cars. I mean, hopefully some kids can, can walk or bike to school, but, um, you know, that's a, a huge amount of energy use. And then many of our school buildings are, are older, you know, um, hopefully we can use some of the money from, um, COVID funds as well as some infrastructure money to improve ventilation in our schools and make, make it more efficient to get, you know, good, clean, fresh air into the buildings and, and, and treat that so that the air is comfortable for students while they're learning. Um, you know, looking at the efficiency of our school buildings, they many of them are older, they're leaky, there's, um, you know, a lot of heat loss and cooling loss from these older buildings. And so absolutely that's something that we need to, to grapple with. And that's something that, you know, some communities through millages can raise funds to you know, build new school buildings, but other communities don't have those resources. And so we need to figure out a way um, through, you know, assistance from state and federal government to make sure that all those schools are as efficient as they can be. And then that's also going to be healthier for the kids in a better learning environment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Nick Schreck, uh, Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at UD Mercy School of Law. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with Axios reporter Felix Salmon about whether Elon Musk will buy Twitter and what free speech really means in the Internet age. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey, Nick Austin, and Lisa John Rogers. Our program director is Joan Isabella, our technical director and engineer, is Matthew Trevethan and Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>